Hi folks, this is Reggie. Welcome to Reggie's Comic Stories, episode number five. You find me here every other Wednesday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and of course, pick us up through Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, others I may have forgotten. Uh, so this week I want to talk about something uh, maybe a little personal, uh, something that Chris and I both like a lot are what we call uh, people's comics stories. Uh, you know, and that would be how they came to comics, how comics became something important in their lives. Um, and this can be a lot of things. It can be someone's first comic. It can be uh, a certain comic that just kind of flipped the switch in their head. It can be uh, a comic strip. Uh, often people have, you know, personal things in their lives tied up in this, uh, you know, this moment. You know, the comics may have helped them get through a difficult time in their lives. Or, uh, you know, they may equate them with just some moment, some momentous uh, event that happened to them. So, you know, comics are sort of tied in there. And we're always, we always love to hear this, even though it's probably the most trite question ever asked of a comics fan. You know, what was your, uh, you know, comics moment? But uh, we always like to hear it. And um, today I would like to read to you three essays from a book called Hey Kids Comics, which was edited and compiled by Rob Kelly. Came out a few years ago on, uh, I cannot read the name of this publisher. I should have written it down. It is Crazy 8 Press, and it came out in 2013. Um, it's essentially a collection of essays of people talking about their memories of buying comic books and collecting comics. Uh, it's, I got to tell you, I'll tell you up front, it's all right. It's a, it's a good beach read uh, or that kind of a thing, or if you have a long flight or something. It's not really going to, like, uh, grip you from cover to cover, I don't think. You know, um, you know the experiences, they run the gamut from the, you know, interesting to the mundane. But I want to, I picked three from today's, uh, I, for today's show, I picked three from this book that I think are, are a good cross-section of how people have their comics moment, uh, you know, and come to comics. And um, at the end of it, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I came to comics, and that'll be... Uh, Interesting for everyone. So the first one I want to read is called The Com- Comic Book Baron of New Jersey by Doug Slack. Yeah, he's an illustrator who's been making comics since the third grade and, by his own quote, refuses to stop. He created Slacker Comics, which put out a few titles in the 1990s, including Lycra Woman and Spandex Girl Jurassic Dinosaur Special Number 1, July 1993 cover date, and Lycra Woman and Spandex Girl Jurassic Halloween Special Number 1, October 1993 cover date. There was a run of 18 issues of Slacker Comics that ended in 1998, and then Doug self-published a mini-comic titled Comics Will Rot Your Brain in 2000. He drew the webcomic Hard-Boiled Horror Tales and now works in his basement in Collingswood, New Jersey. From his basement, I should say. And his work has appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Weird New Jersey Magazine. So he begins. Five dollars. I said the word slowly and carefully enough to convey the prestige of the four-color treasure I removed from the brown paper bag. My mom hit the brakes and stared with her mouth agape. Perhaps her knuckles whitened as she gripped the steering wheel. I couldn't say because I was busy watching her eyes as they lifted from the comic book to my hands to my face to some point further out in the distance, where she may have been hopelessly looking to see where exactly she had failed. 
I recognized his expression and braced myself for attack. The comic seemed like a sound investment at the time. I spotted Tales of the New Teen Titans number one, Cyborg, a week prior, sleeved in the thick mylar and pinned to the wall behind the counter of Heroes World. I had been collecting comics regularly for a few years and had just entered the anal stage. This is the most regretful, shameful stage of a comic fan's life, but with the plastic sleeves and the backing boards and the long boxes. I was a devotee of the annual Robert M. Overstreet official comic book price guide. I would have actually spent hours reading that ridiculous book, poring over titles and prices, admiring the ludicrous supplies advertised in the color pages, wishing I could someday own one of those precious collector's items that were worth thousands. In my greedy quest to become New Jersey's biggest comic book baron, I bought every collector's item I could get my hands on. Somewhere within my moronic reasoning synapses, I determined that limited series and one-shot issues were the best investment. Something about a limited run translating into increased consumer demand, I think. Occasionally, this insistence on collecting first issues reaped quality material, such as the original Claremont Miller Wolverine miniseries. But it also compelled me to blow cash on Marvel's Annie movie adaptation and Captain Carrot and his amazing Zoo Crew number one. Guest appearance by Superman? Double score. So there was Cyborg, as rendered by George Perez, posing on the cover of the first issue of Tales of the New Teen Titans' four-issue limited series in all his cybernetic glory. The hero who was part man, part robot, stood firmly in the center of the cover. Cyber feet planted a full yard apart. Cyber fists clenched as he broke a giant steel chain from around his mighty cyber torso. It was the first time I'd ever heard of the character, and at least I can say that my initial interest wasn't capitalistic. I actually thought he looked cool. When I noticed the title had Teen Titans in it, the dollar signs cha-chinged over my eyes. This was 1984, when the new Teen Titans was DC's hottest book. The early issues were already worth double digits. Double digits. This was a mere spin-off title, but Heroes World, surely a fair-minded establishment, already had it tagged at $5. Obviously, the value of this book was going places, and I could still afford to get in on the ground floor of this excellent investment opportunity. The following week, I returned with the cash and my Wranglers, ready to make my most expensive single comic book purchase to date. I distinctly remember how nonchalant the clerk was about the whole transaction. It was as if she didn't realize what a valuable commodity she was handling. I'd assumed the brokering of the sale would carry the same weight as closing a deal at Tiffany's auction. She was impressed at what a big-shot comic book collector I was, as I just knew she would be. Her manner didn't betray it. Casually, I swear it was almost carelessly, she separated the issue from its mylar sleeve. I blurted out, Oh no, uh, I'll take that too. It's an extra 50 cents. Good thing I brought some extra change just in case. No way was Cyborg traveling home in nothing but a flimsy paper bag. I would be lying if I said I didn't feel a twinge of buyer's remorse. I'm sure every baron has moments of doubt. What I needed was a little reassurance. I needed someone else to tell me I made the right investment. So I showed my mom. Which brings us back to the station wagon outside the mall. There better be something else inside that bag. Nope, this is it. No. Oh, no. Oh, you were ripped off. No, no, it's the Teen Titans, and see? Number one. Number ones are always more... Five dollars? 
Well, it is over a year old. It's not even a new one? No, take it back. It's an investment. Go inside and get your money back. I'll go with you. No. The horror of such a thing occurring, of my mother dragging me back through the mall to Hero's World to demand justice, was enough to put me on the defensive. I dug in my heels and said, You don't understand. This is a collector's item. I'm a collector. This is going to get more valuable. Oh, Doug. Look, I'll make you a deal. Just wait until next year's Overstreet price guide comes out and we'll see if it goes up in value. Just let me keep it until then. In retrospect, I don't know what kind of retarded deal that was supposed to be. What happens if she was right? Was Heroes World really going to give me a refund on a six-month-old purchase? But she relented. All right. We'll just wait until that new book comes out and then we'll see. Grr, mutter, gripe, five dollars, kvetch. After we arrived home, I carefully read the issue, lay flat on the table, turned pages slowly from the top corner, and then returned it to its sleeve. I inserted an acid-free backing board and sealed the top with scotch tape. Luckily, the tea titles fell in the middle of my long box, so Cyborg was wedged safely inside my collection. There, it waited to silently appreciate in value and ultimately vindicate me. Today, you can purchase Tales of the New Teen Titans number 1, Cyborg, from various online sellers for $1. That cost does not include Mylar Sleeve. So that's what Doug Slack has to say about comics collecting, which is definitely one common comic book experience. Um, It's not one that I really ever had. I was really never a huge collector in the sense of chasing valuable comics. I'm more, and even today, I only collect the comics I feel that I want, or comics that I feel will never ever be collected in trade. Uh, And often if they do get collected in trade, I will ditch the singles for the trade collection. The second story I want to read from this book is called Secret Origin by Steve Engelhart. Now this is probably a very familiar name to a lot of people listening to the show. Uh, I'm going to do a very quick biography of him because that's not really what this uh, show is about. A full version of his bio can be found in Cosmic Treadmill episode 32. And in that one, we read The Defenders number one. That's an August 1972 cover date. Steve was born April 22, 1947 in Indianapolis, Indiana, and he earned his Bachelor of Arts degree from Wesleyan University in 1969. Moved to New York to break into comic books, and initially he wanted to be an artist. He began his writing career co-writing with Gardner Fox the six-page story Retribution in the Eerie number 35, September 1971 cover date. He also drew that story. He and artist Sal Buscema launched The Defenders as as an ongoing series in 1972, and he wrote The Avengers from issue 105, that was November 1972 cover date, to 152, an October 1976 cover date. Uh, that also included the Cree Scroll War, which is very well remembered. Following Jerry Conway's promotion to editor in chief in March 1976, Engelhardt had a falling out with him and left Marvel. DC Comics publisher Jeanette Kahn persuaded him to come to DC. He promised to fix Justice League of America and to work there for only a year. He ended up uh, writing Justice League of America 139 to 146 and then 149 to 150 with artist Dick Dillon. He also wrote a very beloved eight-issue arc of Batman stories in Detective Comics 469 through 476 with pencilers Walt Simonson and Marshall Rogers. This is often considered the uh, 
Rupert Thorne, Hugo Strange, Joker, Fish, Ark, or whatever. In 1983, Marvel's creator-owned imprint Epic Comics published Coyote, which was a series he created earlier with, uh, in collaboration with artist Steve Lealoha and later Chaz Truog and Todd McFarlane drew it. He returned to mainstream Marvel Comics later in the 1980s with since on West Coast Avengers, The Second Vision and the Scarlet Witch, Witch Vim, The Second Vision and the Scarlet Witch limited series with artist Richard Howell, Surf, Silver Surfer again with Rogers, and Fantastic Four during which editorial disputes led to him using the pseudonym John Harkness. At the same time, Steve Englehart wrote DC Comics Green Lantern, overseeing the title's name change to Green Lantern Corps. And he wrote the DC Weekly crossover series Millennium, that was January through February 1988. Uh, we went through all that for Weird Comics History Episode 21, so you don't have to read that, folks. In 1992, he co-created the Ultraverse Comics universe for Malibu Comics, and throughout the remainder of the 1990s, he wrote a series of young adult books for Avon. In the early 2000s, Engelhart returned to comics briefly, and in 2005, he reunited with Marshall Rogers on the miniseries Batman Dark Detective, and I bet he hasn't been idle since then, but that's about all I dug up for this particular episode. So, Steve begins, Once upon a time, I was a kid, and I loved three comics. One was Batman, one was Walt Disney's comics and stories with the Carl Barks Ducks and the Paul Murray Mickey Mouse mysteries, and one was Dick Tracy. Tracy was pretty much unknown in his modern incarnation, a bad strip that isn't carried by much of anyone anymore. But in its heyday in the 1930s through the 1950s, it was just a classic comic, clever, entertaining stories, and utterly distinctive art. It had a lot of black ink involved which is the main theme that runs through my three faves above. Dark, juicy ink lines. Always my weakness. See also Bill Everett's Submariner, which wasn't around when I was a kid. I became aware of Tracy in the late 50s, when it was still great. And once I did, I had the unique ability to see it daily in my local newspaper and in reprint books from Harvey Comics, on sale monthly. The Harvey Comics were the most interesting for three reasons. One, They covered that earlier material when things had been weirder than they were in the 50s, which is pretty much true of everything in the 50s. Two, they had a special art style. And three, they were censored. First, weirdness. The villains in the reprint comics were Flat Top and The Brow and Shaky and The Mole and Measles and Mumbles. These villains were cartoony, but their threats were intense. Adventure strips were taken seriously in the 30s and 40s, since there was no television, so the stories were reasonably sophisticated crime dramas. More than once, there were gun battles and other acts of physical violence. Right there in your daily paper alongside the Katzenjammer kids. When Harvey first began to republish those stories in comics form in 1948, they just republished them. Harvey's contribution was to fit the stories, originally written to whatever length Gould wanted, into standard comic length and add color. They did this in a number of ways. Panels could be dropped, leading to some strange continuity glitches, or all panels could be used, including the last one from Sunday and the first one from Monday, where the exact same things happened. Then, the Sunday panels, which were larger than the daily ones, could be cut down and fit together to take less room. Or, if a sequence needed to be stretched, the smaller daily panels could be placed inside larger comic book panels and extended with additional art. That additional art really caught my attention. 
The Harvey House artist who finished the panels did a pretty good job, but he wasn't perfect. Sometimes he'd add art to one side of the original panel or the other. Sometimes he'd cut the original panel in two and add art in the middle. But in almost all cases, the point where the original ended and his additions began was visible. A cross-hatching that didn't quite continue what was already there. A misline from the original panel border now running through a part of the panel. Mr. House Artist also had to cover up the date and copyright notice in every fourth panel, which leads to an even more intricate set of changes. Gould drew the original strip so the bottom fourth of the art could be cut off without losing anything important. Newspapers could take the three quarters that were left, make it 33% taller so it was back to the original height, and have it be 33% wider too. The bottom fourth was ultimately unnecessary, but was drawn just as well as the rest, so there were really two versions of every strip, the essential version and the complete version, and Harvey went back and forth on which version it used in the comics. The effect on me of all of this was twofold. The comic was a continuous series of little art mysteries for me to solve, and it was a reminder that what I was seeing, though a pipeline to the original stories, was not the original stories, which, as any comic collector or budding collector could tell you, left me yearning for the real thing. But that was only the beginning of the delights to be found in Dick Tracy Comics Monthly, because what I was seeing was actually the reprints of the reprints. In the late 1950s, Harvey began recycling their earlier issues, and who among us would like to say what happened to comics between the late 1940s and the, and the late 1950s? Yes, exactly, the Comics Code. So material which had been on display in the daily paper, and reprinted once in broad daylight, was now considered not suitable for children. Thus, the 50s versions of the comics were missing any real hint of violence. And when I say missing, I mean missing. I don't know whether Harvey was simply living up or down to the letter of the law, or whether they were issuing a hearty screw you to the code. But what they did was, they took the offending items out of the black plate, but not the red, yellow, or blue plates. Helpful note for Photoshop babies, comics were once printed in four-color process, using the colors available from combinations of various percentages of red, yellow, and blue over the black line art. So once in the paper and once in the original comic, the brow had pointed a gun at Tracy and pulled the trigger. But now he was holding out an empty hand, except for something that was blue and shaped like a gun floating in that hand, and a red line streaking from it. Or a woman had fallen into machinery that crushed her, and now there was machinery in a pink woman-shaped void. You say this is the body of the matron, asked Tracy, staring at pink nothing. Usually the dialogue was left in place, but now and then there'd be weird blank spaces where words should have been, something that had grown too hot to ignore. In the reprint of the reprint of the story of Measles, Tracy is being dragged by Measles' car. Measles sees it. The next panel sports a yellow caption, completely empty, and a dialogue balloon big enough for a dozen words, but no words except for, Dirty Spy. Measles must have declared his intent to go back up and try to run over Tracy, because the next panel has the caption, By the merest split second, Tracy pulls his legs aside in time to prevent their being crushed. Then comes room for more verbiage, but that room is blank, and the area visible under the car is blank. So a kid like me could learn to figure out what was going on pretty well, solving the continuous mysteries. But it was teaching me, panel by panel, to scoff at hypocrisy. And... Here's where we've, been, where we've been going with this. It was showing me that comics were not some alien thing that just appeared on the doorstep or the news rack, but material that could be shaped in a variety of ways. 
It was only natural that I could that I would then decide to master the shaping process myself. So I started making my own Dick Tracy comics. I cut out the strips from the daily paper. I designed comics pages and pasted the strips on the pages. I added art where needed, entirely in pencil. I colored the daily strips to match the colored Sunday strips again in pencil. I managed, through the judicious use of shadows, to cover up the blocks of text and the copyright notices. It was most assuredly comics geekdom writ large, but it was also my first lessons in the arts of editing, storytelling, and design. And in my editorial regime, I never toned anything down. When the story line was complete, I drew a cover, punched two holes in all the pages, strung them together with twine, and had a complete comic. I did that four times, collecting the tales of Headache, Mary Jones, Popsy, E. Kent Hardly, Rodent, Fatty, Willie V, and Flyface. Then I got too old or too smart to keep at it. But in a twist on the traditional comic book story, my mom did not throw them out, so I still have them right here as I write. And there you have my secret origin as a comic book writer. And, uh, you know, Steve Englehart is someone I respect a lot as a writer. I love that Batman run and that run on Green Lantern. And, of course, his uh, run on Avengers. Uh, the Avengers is uh, very heralded. Didn't love that Dark Detective in 2005, but uh, they can't all be winners. What really struck me about this story, that this is how I was as a kid. And I bet uh, a lot of you were like this, too. You sort of live in the lines of these panels. There was so much more to it than the uh, reading of the story or even just the uh, you know, enjoying the the action in the panel, you just like get inside the inking and the you know looking at the variants of these lines and wondering the materials that they used, uh, you know how it was done. I remember looking at Bad Magazine, which I know now used a uh, type of board whose name I actually forget. I'm very sorry, but you have to use treat it with a special material that shows gray through. It's kind of a a reverse gray wash, it comes through on the board, and that's better for printing. And I obsessed over that as a kid, how they did this. I didn't understand. Uh, it was nothing like Zipatone, yet it looked nothing like brushwork. Um, these are the kind of things that really can obsess you as a young comic book collector. And uh, I'd love to know what, what obsessed you guys, too, as uh, when you were younger. Whether you were deeply into the art or whether maybe you were picking apart the formula of comic books, which I know a lot of people do. You know, Jim Shooter did that, for example. He, like, sort of just read a bunch of comics and figured out, wait, these kind of follow a certain formula. So that's how he uh, became who he is, basically. The last one I want to read today is uh, not too long, um, but I think this one is the most pertinent to me. It's called Blood on the Page by Richard Harlan Smith, and he was born September 3rd, 1961, in Beckley, West Virginia. He began writing about movies in 1997 for Video Watchdog magazine, and he created an influential horror blog, Arbogast on Film. He's provided Blu-ray commentary for many B-movies, including Blood and Lace, Blood and Lace, and Deranged Confessions, Confessions of a Necrophile both from 1974, also The Devil Bat from 1940, The Death Kiss from 1932, Burnt Offerings, The Seven Ups, The Earth Dies Screaming, Donovan's Brain, Beware the Blob, Chosen Survivors, Panic in Year Zero, Twice Told Tales, and several others. This guy is really prolific in that very weird uh, cloistered world. He also currently writes for Filmstruck.com, 
and he's part of a group of horror enthusiasts and reviewers known as Horror Dads. And I recommend his writing if you are a film buff, especially if you like uh, schlocky movies or horror movies. He's very well written, super knowledgeable, and like not too snarky, but also not without a sense of humor. I think that's an important uh, balance to strike uh, reviewing anything, but he definitely strikes that balance for me. So again, this one is called Blood the Page, and it begins. I am a fraud. I don't belong here. In the service of full disclosure, I must confess that I was never a comic book kid. Oh, sure, I had comic books. Some. A few issues gifted from friends or my parents, even a couple that I had paid out for out of my allowance. I like the idea of comic books, the way they break a story down into panels, giving you many Whitman samplers of visual information and an economy of dialogue. I thought that was pretty tough. But the fever never set in. It's interesting to go back and make a go of charting the progression or regression of your childhood interests. I should have been a comic book kid. I was a big fan of the old Batman TV series, as you could find. I was the perfect age for hero worship when the show premiered in 1966. Our family would drive to my Aunt Betty's house in Woodstock to watch each new episode in color. And I bought into the merchandising. I had a utility belt, not THE utility belt, but an affordable knockoff. And the Aurora model kit. In summers, I ran around my cul-de-sac with a beach towel clothes pinned around my suntan neck. My dad even drew me Batman and Robin posters from my bedroom. Full color, pow, but at some point along the line, I lost the taste for superheroes. Consequently, comic books, where superheroes lived, didn't hold me for all that much fascination. Mind you, I'm not ignorant. I know lots of stuff about superheroes. Names, logos, secret identities, lists of principal antagonists, origin stories. At an impressionable age, my father put Jules Pfeiffer's The Great Comic Book Heroes into my hands, and I went steady with that oversized tome until it broke apart like wet bread, or like Olivia Hussey at the end of The Lost Horizon. The remake, the musical one. So I know about superheroes, at least ones of a certain vintage from the post-war era, until the early 70s, the Golden Age into the Silver Age. I did my reading. I put in my time. I also accepted gifts of Mego-articulated superhero action figures, a Kenner Stretch Incredible Hulk, and Tifton Records' long-playing album Songs and Stories about the Justice League of America, with songs I can still sing end-to-end from memory even at the distance of nearly 40 years. I watched The Incredible Hulk and Wonder Woman. Hell, I even watched Shazam and Isis. I guess I was caught up in a boyish momentum at the time, attending to things I thought I should be interested in. And yet my attention didn't extend to comics. In 1971, I discovered famous monsters of film land on the newsstand at Doe's Card and Gift Shop on Main Street in my small New England mill town. And that magazine changed my DNA. It was no longer remotely possible for me to be a superhero guy. I was, from that moment on, branded a monster kid. Their respective tones keep superheroes and monsters at a safe remove from one another, but the genres have more in common than you'd think. They both broker in change, in life-altering events, and the necessity of reinventing yourself in the face of this change. Superhero stories are about people who can make this transition. Horror stories, generally speaking, are about the ones who cannot. Gangland safecracker Patrick E.L. O'Brien falls into a vat of acid and becomes elastic do-gooder plastic man. That was in 1941 and my kids have Plastic Man dolls 70 years later. Sideshow performer Dynamo Dan McCormick gets juiced with an ungodly amount of electricity 
and becomes the mad-made monster for all of a week until he dies pitiably hanging on barbed wire like a dryer sheet stuck on a pair of polyester pants. Superhero tales are about winners, horror stories about losers. Because I was a loser, I gravitated to the latter. I was fat, pimpled, my hair lusterless, my clothes cheap. Do they still make big yank jeans? I was never going to squeeze into a skin-tight unitard, much less save the world, but scare some girls and cause some damage before falling under a police fusillade into a well-aerated heap? That I could do. I liked the tragic tag, maybe because I knew I could never pull off triumphant. And so, when I could have been stocking up on DC Comics, I was giving it up for Warren Publications, FM and Creepy and Eerie, and their imitators, while my Mego superheroes sh- shared cramped toy box quarters with the formidable likes of Dracula, the Wolfman, the Mummy, and the Frankenstein Monster. I probably had the same dozen comic books kicking around in my bedroom for ten years. I'd take them out and reread them from time to time, thrilling more to the medium of comic storytelling than any interest in keeping current. I remember having World's Finest Comics number 216, with its cover depicting the sons of Batman and Superman frozen in suspended animation tubes. I also had DC Comics' Our Fighting Forces, The Losers number 135. Set during World War II, this series followed the exploits of a handful of American soldiers, Captain Storm, Sarge, Johnny Cloud, and Gunner, all of whom had appeared on their own in previous comics, who had pooled their respective talents towards toppling the Axis Bastards. I can't tell you why I kept this particular issue as if it were an heirloom. Maybe it was the artwork. I loved John Severn's work and actually hated what the otherwise mighty Jack Kirby did with the comic a few years later. Or maybe it was because of the shock ending, where Captain Storm, who was really a lieutenant, it's complicated, gets blown up and all that's left is his wooden leg. Even though Joe Kubert's cover art for issue 135 spoiled the ending pretty badly, Captain Storm is dead! I was still knocked back a step. Maybe I thought Storm's death would be a fake-out, but it seemed by the final panel to be horribly true, and there was the man's bloody wooden leg to prove it. Well, the thing about the blood is that it was painted in, and I don't mean by the staff at D.C. My next-door neighbor and my best friend Danny Shies had obviously done the aftermarket upgrade with acrylic model paint. He had done a bang-up job limbing the inside of the prosthetic leg with just enough blood to communicate ghastly trauma. I was impressed. I was inspired. And I had model paint, too. I quickly set to work bloodying up my comics. Because I owned so few superhero comics, I had nowhere to turn but to my collection of Classics Illustrated. If you're not familiar with the brand, Classics Illustrated was the brainchild of Albert Cantor, a Russian immigrant who created the line for Gilbert Publishing in 1941. The series continued until 1971, with 169 issues breaking down classic novels into neatly digested comic scenarios before the advent of Cliff Notes. This was the way to go to ace a book report without having to read the book. I don't know why my mom started getting these for me. I was years away from my first book report, but maybe she thought the connection to literature would elevate my mind. I owe a lot to my parents. Their copy of Alex Comfort's The Joy of Sex was my first graphic novel. The classics, the classics comics were pretty dry stuff, downplaying the more lurid aspects of a particular novel in favor of the broad strokes. But I ate them up anyway, and I'm sure I was driven to actual novels later in life because of this early exposure. But I digress. We were talking about blood. 
As I said, the classics were pretty tame, and were, there were plenty of opportunities for adding extra blood. I don't mean just in purposely grotesque stuff like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but in stories where the author and artists probably hadn't thought blood was an issue. So on the title page of Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, I added just a little gout of blood as the protagonist is bonk on, bonked on the head by a falling pipe wrench, the very act that takes him, if only in his mind, to the Middle Ages. In Walter Van Tilburg Clark's The Oxbow Incident, I let Juan Martinez's leg wound bleed a little after he digs out the posse's bullet. In Jack London's The Sea Wolf, Thomas Mugridge's shark-bit stump fairly screamed for a spray of crimson, and I even arranged an explosive exit wound for the bullet that hits the villain of Ernest K. Gann's Soldier of Fortune in the place where his sash crosses his heart. I got a little carried away sometimes, seeing blood where there ought not to have been any. There was no real reason for the fat-assed Weep King of Frank Norris's The Octopus, A Story of California, to bleed when he met his death in the grain elevator, but I couldn't resist a little trickle from his mouth as he tumbled in, rationalizing that he could easily have bitten his tongue. Years later, I would point to scenes in both Carl the Dreyer's Vampire and Peter Weir's Witness that were influenced by this scene in this Norris novel, but nobody cared. Pointing out that kind of trivia was never cool. I eventually moved on to bloodying up my G.I. Joes and Johnny West guys during tabletop fistfights and to mixing my own blood with ingredients caged from my mother's spice cabinet for Super 8 horror movies with titles like Dracula Must Be Destroyed and Blood of the Ghoul. By 1979, Famous Monsters of Filmland was dead and buried and I was reading Fangoria, the first monster mag to really play up the gory stuff to make our fascination with blood and viscera a going concern. After 20 post-college years in New York City, 10 of those working in a major metropolitan hospital, my interest in visual storytelling brought me to Hollywood, where I continued to live and to write about movies and popular culture, and where I might even make a little money writing the occasional screenplay. You might be surprised to know my horror scripts can be a bit stingy with the red stuff, but I learned some hard lessons in my youth. Comic books may grow on trees, but blood sure doesn't. So that last one is more unusual than the other ones because we're talking about someone that isn't really a comics enthusiast. Although I would argue that he is, you don't have to have a, you know, 50 long boxes or even any particular comics to be uh, in love with the uh, form of uh, literature that comics is. That That's all it is really is just a way of, uh, you know, telling a story. So... Uh, but, you know, he's not the typical, you know, he ran to the corner of the story. The reason I put this in is two reasons. Number one, the the way that he uh, bloodied up his comics and then later on handles his G.I. Joes. I'm sure a lot of you have memories of this, too. I never went and drew on my comics, although I often would uh, augment newspaper strips. Um, but I definitely did, you know, at a certain age, around 12 or 13 or whatever, start applying firecrackers to all my old Transformers and stuff and putting pinhole bullet holes in them and battle scars and stuff. And uh, I definitely do, you know, understand that. Uh, but what really got me and what really likens this to my own experience, which I'm going to reveal to you right now, is that he was, you know, his first, his real introduction to comics was through a book. And that really is my story. Uh, the first comics I ever saw were some of my first ever memories because my father had already gotten these books. I was a baby, and, you know, here I am, like, 
the first material I ever read was comics. Three that, that strike me as fundamental to my youth that I, I must have read thousands of times uh, would be the Smithsonian Collection of Newspaper Comics. That's edited by Bill Blackbird Beard. That first came out from the Smithsonian Institution in 1977, but it's reprinted by some other, I think Charles Adams is the publisher now. They'd still, you can still get it. <clears throat> Another one, and uh, my man Chris Carnes from uh, Bat Books for Beginners knows about this book. We've talked about it, the uh, no, uh, uh, comics, A History of Comics in America by Lee Daniels. That was published by E.P. Dutton in 1971. That's a black and white book, but it's got a huge overview of comics, and I must have looked at that a million times. Uh, the jacket fell off, the, the binding broke, everything. The, the book is was destroyed. And then uh, The Great Comic Book Heroes by Jules Pfeiffer. That was published by Doubleday in 1965. That's the one that um, that uh, uh, Richard Harlan Smith mentions that his father gave him. And it is. There's a lot of Golden Age stories. Um, you know, the, the first stories of Batman. I know the Spectres in there, Captain America. It's amazing because it does have material from DC and Marvel. You know, so... Jules Pfeiffer had enough, you know, good graces in the industry to kind of cross the aisle and get uh, permission from both publishers. So th- this is how I really came to comics, and there were other comics too. My my dad had the uh, uh, Walt Disney reprints for Mickey and Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge at the time, which were subpar to what's coming out now. But I read those a million times. He had. Uh, God, you know, there was a Smithsonian comic book one I used to read a lot. Um, and I think that that's important to say because I think that this colors my perception of comics and is probably the reason why we do, uh, Chris and I do our podcast the way that we do it as sort of an informational history-based podcast because uh, he, you know, he came to comics first through ElfQuest, but he's also, a, a you know, a, a great understanding, a, you know, a great appreciator of the breadth of comics and the you know the uh types of things the stories that and the subjects that it can tackle um but you know by first seeing comics and book the first time i saw a comic it was already an artifact you know my my first understanding of it was this is something to be preserved and studied and examined it's an interesting uh you know i would come to understand later sort of an interesting outgrowth of popular culture you know it it's it had a lot of different factors um, supplying it, but essentially it's all part of that weird 20th century uh, produce things that you don't really need to buy in order to stimulate economic growth. But that's for another podcast entirely. My point here is that, um, you know, seeing these comics and books, I've always had this sort of hands-off academic approach to comics. Later in life, I'm going to reveal here, although not too much, that my father worked in comics, and I would actually get every DC and Marvel and Epic comic for free for many years, um, five or six years, and then again later when I was a teenager. Uh, and that's where I got my full mainstream comics uh, education. And, you know, from there I went backwards. And there were people that put me on to Bronze Age and Silver Age comics, although I had already read about their existence, so I had some knowledge of them. You know, I kind of I came into comics already, uh, you know, with an old brain about it. Uh, so... You know, this I think this sort of couches also by getting all these comics for free. I never had the experience of really like going to the store and buying a comic off the rack. I remember I would go to the comic shop or I'd go and my friends would buy comics. And since I already had all the comics I could pretty much handle, we used to like 
They used to litter my floor. We'd have to throw them away in bundles every, like, couple of weeks. Um, I would uh, I would buy, like, Mad Magazines and TV Guides. Like, I just didn't... I remember I bought a bunch of Little Lulus once because I had read about Little, Little Lulu in one of my dad's books. So th- this is... I don't know if that tells you anything interesting about me or whether this makes me uh, the world's biggest comics jerk or whatever. This is, you know, who I am, uh, how I came to comics, and even today... You know, I definitely have sort of a, uh, you know, I'm I'm fascinated by comics. I am. I think that they are an amazing form of literature uh, on in many different ways. That I hope that I've made that clear through the years uh, of doing Cosmic Treadmill. But you know, there is definitely a part of me that just feels like, what an interesting anomaly. You know, has grown out of of popular culture. Um, which, you know, there's truth to that too, but I don't want to, uh, denigrate anyone else's personal experience. And like I said in the very beginning, I love to hear people's personal experiences. Really, we got into the Cosmic Treadmill hoping that we would get a bunch of suggestions from people of their, you know, favorite, their, their childhood favorite comic or their first comic. Uh, we got a couple of those, but mainly it's people saying, explain, uh, Final Crisis. You know, that, that's probably the most common one we get. So anyway, um, that's it really for this episode. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you got some uh, entertainment out of it. I hope I didn't flub the reading too poorly. I did the best I could and uh, made corrections where I thought it was vital. But uh, yeah, this is not a bad book. I'll say it again. It's Hey Kids Comics, edited and compiled by Rob Kelly. Like I say, a real quick breathe. You know what? You know what? This would be good. And I hope uh, uh, Mr. Kelly isn't offended by this. It's a great bathroom read because each essay is about one nice, you know, session. Anyway, uh, that'll be all for this week, folks. Uh, next week, we'll, you'll have Chris on Infinite Earth, and I'll be back the week after that. So until then, folks, I hope you keep everything comic Back in the days when I was a teenager, before I had status and before I had a pager, you can find the abstract, listening to hip-hop. My pops used to say it reminded him of bebop. I said, well, daddy, don't you know that things go in cycles? Way the Bobby Brown is just amping like Michael. It's all expected. Things are for the looking. If you got the money, quest is for the booking. Come on, everybody, let's get with the fly mode. Still got room on the truckload of black gold. Listen to the rhyme to get a mental picture of this black man, black woman picture. Why do I see that? Cause I gotta speak the truth, man. Doing what we feel for the